Hello, friends. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, I invite you to turn it to Genesis 21 or your worship guide. We'll do great. The passage is listed there as well. Yesterday, um, yesterday the Portland Timbers played in the MLS Cup. And um, Becca and I went to Gigantic Brewing and sat in a kind of a warehouse area full of barrels. Well, not full, full of people with barrels on the side and watched the game. And the Timbers played really well, but not good enough. But it was wonderful to see uh, our team uh, go to the cup and play their hearts out. And apparently... Over 25,000 people were packed into Providence Park. The game was at 12 o'clock in the afternoon around lunchtime. So those 25,000 people filled downtown and the Pearl and Goose Hollow or downtown neighborhoods before the game. And I saw later last night on the news, I don't normally watch the news, but we were at dinner with some friends after the game and I, I watched on the news I was following along with the closed captioning that uh, I guess it's a KATU TV ran a story about how good it was for downtown Portland to have 25,000 people uh, flood into the downtown neighborhoods and go to the downtown neighborhood restaurants and uh, spend money and spend time, how it was good for the economy and how it was even good for helping to reduce crime and on the news they talked about how our downtown neighborhoods have had such a hard two years and as portlanders we're all aware that we drive downtown and it's not like what it was before and i watched on the news how this a celebration of how a soccer game could bring a new kind of peace to our downtown neighborhoods and i think about how peace often comes in strange packages. Uh, Maybe it's optimistic to think the soccer game is really going to (laughs) help. But our Advent hope that peace comes in strange packages is not really optimistic. It's the most rational thing in the world, that God brings peace in strange ways. Today in our passage, we have a story of how God brought peace in a strange, unexpected way. And as you read Abraham's life, this is one of those stories that would be easy to pass over. It's, oh, here's Abraham making a treaty with King Abimelech. What's the big deal? But when we read it with our minds tuned in to looking for who God is in the passage and how God's revealed identity informs our identity as people, like we've been practicing since August in these Abraham stories. When you look at it that way, it really becomes an Advent story. It's a story about how God brings peace in an unexpected way. So let's read it together, and then we'll pray, and then I'd like to show you um, how we see Jesus in this passage doing what he does, bringing peace to our broken world. 
So Genesis 21, and we're going to start with verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Philcol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as, I've, as I have dealt kindly with you, you will deal kindly with me in the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham removed Reproved. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? And he said, these are seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore that place was called Beersheba, because both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned in the, and Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that every time we come to your word, we encounter more than trustworthy, true stories, although we do encounter that. Thank you that we encounter you yourself, that you, in a mysterious way, inhabit these stories and can be found there. Thank you that we encounter Jesus, to whom every page of Scripture and every forgotten uh, seemingly maybe trivial historical data story testifies to him. God, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, our imaginations, our minds. Help us to see Christ in this story. I pray that we would receive your peace that he has freely given. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Every story in Abraham's life that we've gone through over the last four months, we've asked one singular question, at least, and that's, who is Abraham's God in this passage? Who does God reveal himself to be? We ask that question because we're convinced that if we could get an idea, if we can get a picture of who God is, then that tells us who we are and what it is we're doing here in the world when life is so hard. Well, some of these stories we really had to search, uh, but some of these stories, who God is, is openly declared. God has either given a name or we learn one of God's names, and this is one of those stories. Uh, we find a new name for God in this passage, a name that God has taken upon himself that he reveals here in the scripture, and that name 
is at the end of the story, in verse 33, it says, after he had talked to Abimelech and made the treaty, it says, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. The everlasting God. That's one of God's names. And it means something. It tells us about who he is. It tells us about who we are. God everlasting. In the Hebrew, it's El Olam. Olam means everlasting or forever. Sometimes it means uh, eternity. Uh, on and on and on, without end, established from long ago and continuing beyond farther than we can ever imagine. El Olam, God everlasting, is a God who is on a forever timeline. Now, sometimes if you, uh, when you dig down deep into uh, the, the language of the Bible and, and, the, and the, the theology that we find there, sometimes in Scripture, uh, eternity or timelessness is an idea that's sort of separate from uh, forever or everlastingness. Sometimes they're kind of meshed together, the fact that God has no beginning and no end and he's on an eternal timeline. Sometimes it's coupled with the idea that he is above time, but sometimes it's separate. And in this particular passage, this everlasting, this olam, the image that we're supposed to get is even though God does exist above time and he's not constrained by it, the particular image that we get here with this language is that God operates within time, but really has no beginning or end. This is eternity in the sense that God is on a forever timeline. He's not hurried. He's not rushed. He doesn't, uh, he, he, he's not impatient. He's not, uh, he doesn't have an expiration date. He's not aging. He is forever. Do you see it? And what's interesting about this story is that God's foreverness, Abraham calls on God, El Olam, God everlasting, in a moment where Abraham acts as a peacemaker between his family of nomadic immigrant sojourners, and this king, Abimelech, king of the land of Gerar, the land of the Philistines. Now, we know Abimelech. We've encountered him before. Uh, just in the chapter before, we, if you remember, this was a few weeks ago, Abraham uh, moved into Abimelech's territory uh, in the land of Gerar, and he pulled the old trick that he'd been pulling for years. This is Sarah. She's my sister. Remember that? We talked all about that. Shouldn't have done that, Abraham. Uh, but, and Abimelech took Sarah as his wife. Uh, this is different than the time it happened in Egypt because it says that he didn't touch her. And then God stepped in, and Abimelech is like, we see that he was, even though he's a pagan king, he had fear of God, and he did not want to offend God. And he went to Abraham, and he said, how could you do this to me? Why would you lie to me? 
And Abraham was like, I thought there was no fear of God in this place. You know what? Uh, I guess I shouldn't have done that. And we read all about how uh, Abraham and Abimelech had this very tense moment uh, where Abraham had prejudged Abimelech. Abraham thought he was a bad dude before he ever took time to get to know him. And he lied to him, and it made things awkward for everybody. And it ended up, people ended up, uh, it affected a lot more people than just Abraham and Abimelech. It was a huge deal. Well, now we see Abimelech come back. It says, at that time, so just Abimelech and Abraham, Abraham lied, and the thing we just described, and then Abraham and Sarah had Isaac, the child of promise, and Ishmael had to leave, and then at that time, Abimelech comes back, but this time he comes back with the commander of his army. This is, this is I, I wonder what Abraham was thinking when he saw this king who he had previously offended coming up over the hill with the commander of his army. Maybe he was thinking, oh, I think I've outstayed my welcome. Maybe I should have tried harder to make friends with Abimelech before. And I wonder if Abraham, having been already frustrated that Abimelech's men have been harassing his family and his household and taking a well that they had dug, I wonder what Abraham thought when Abimelech, here he comes. This is a moment in the text when things are tense. Abraham had been harassed by Abimelech's people. Abimelech's people had been negatively affected when Abraham treated them with prejudice. These are two groups that it's been a little tense. And this is Abimelech's land. Remember, Abraham is a sojourner. He's a traveler. But what Abraham does in this story, he steps into that moment, and he listens to Abimelech with humility. Abimelech says, hey, I know God is with you. Let's make a treaty. And what, what's, what seems to be implied there is Abimelech when he says, you deal honestly with me, and I'll deal honestly with you. It's like he's saying, hey, remember how we didn't start out right because we started out with you judging me and lying to me? How about we start over? By the way, I stand here fully armed with the commander of my army. New relationship. You treat me with honesty. I'll treat you with honesty. And Abraham listens with humility. He says, okay, I'll do that. Before they ever draw out a, a treaty or obligations for both parties, he just he starts with, yeah, of course. And it defuses the situation. And then Abraham speaks the truth in confidence. He says, you know what, bud? Uh, this all sounds great, but I, I, now's a good time. I got to tell you, your guys, have, they stole our well. And that's, 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 that's a big deal. You know, this is, this is the Negev. This is the arid part of the promised land. Uh, oh, just past the Negev, if, if I remember from a few weeks ago. This is arid and a well, especially for a nomadic family, that's a matter of life or death, flourishing or suffering. But Abraham speaks the truth. He says, you know what, man? There's a problem here. He doesn't shy away from the confrontation, even though he speaks with humility. And we see this interaction result in peace. There's a covenant that's made, like God made a covenant with Abraham. Here we see a covenant made, a mutual covenant between these two, uh, between a king and a head of this big nomadic 
household. A treaty is made between somebody who had claimed to the land and someone who, even though they were promised the land, had not received it yet. And then Abraham continues in hope. He plants a tree. He's camping. He's a sojourner. But he plants a tree, specifically a tamarisk tree. Now, I had to do a little Wikipedia-ing, but I learned something awesome. Tamarisk trees, one, are evergreen trees. They're unaffected by a change in seasons, at least visibly unaffected. And second, tamarisk trees grow very, 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 very slowly. And nobody plants a tamarisk tree with the expectation that it will be enjoyed in their own lifetime. People plant tamarisk trees with the expectation that their great-grandkids will enjoy it. So when we see Abraham calling on the name of the everlasting God and planting this tree, it's like Abraham is saying, even though I'm sojourning in this place, I am and we are unaffected by the winds of change. And even though this land doesn't belong to me, it's been promised to my family. Future generations will settle here. He's acting in hope. So, how is it that Abraham, this man that we have seen act like a complete fool for many, many chapters now, for four months, we have watched Abraham be pursued by God, be loved by God, encountered by God, and also make horrible decisions and hurt people and mess things up. Why is it that in this situation, here with this pagan king, how is he acting like such a hero? What has changed in the, the Abraham from before, who was taking money from the king of Egypt, selling out his wife, uh, taking advantage of Hagar, uh, all of these things. What causes him to change in this moment? Well, the key is that he called at the end. We see where his mind was fixed in the whole interaction. This whole thing ends with Abraham calling on El Olam, the everlasting God. And we see a clue. Abraham does something beautiful, confident, humble, hopeful. And at the end, he says, everlasting God. It's all about you, me and you. That's what I'm focusing on. So here's the question. What is it about God's foreverness, his everlastingness, his on and on and on and onness that enables God's people, foolish as we may be, to live as peacemakers in our neighborhoods, in our city, in the world? What is it? What's the link between God being a forever God and his people being a peacemaking people. I want to know what that is. We live in a city uh, that outwardly, invisibly, is in need of peace. We're, we, we, 
We know that Portland has a great spiritual need. We've heard that it's one of the most unchurched cities in the country. But yeah, 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 we know that. But at least over the last couple of years, we have visibly seen reminders of how our city is crying out for peace. Crying out for peace to the point where we find ourselves, even though I love soccer, maybe soccer will help. And here we are as a church in Portland, rooted here having a home here and a legacy here even though on one hand we are sojourners this isn't our ultimate destination but how, how do we live here as people of peace well in some sense looking to god and calling on him as the everlasting god is the key that unlocks our agency as peacemakers how does that work well Abraham's life, his whole life, was a life of the everlasting, the forever, the eternal, breaking in and overwhelming and really breaking the temporary. Abraham's whole life was a life of the permanent, overwhelming the temporary. He was an old man at the end of his career, with no kids, in a deeply family-based culture. And God calls him to start over and promises that he would be a father of a multitude of nations. Abraham, at the end of his temporary life, at the end of his temporary limited legacy, is called by God into foreverness. Abraham the nomad is promised permanence in the land. Abraham the fool, the self-interested, chauvinistic, bad decision maker, herder of people, was promised to be a blessing to the whole world. You see it? His whole life is characterized by this permanence, overcoming the temporary, right? And we also know that Abraham's life is sort of a paradigm model. It's sort of a preview. It's an example of what it means to be a Christian, of the Christian life, right? We've talked all about that. And the Christian life really is about the eternal entering in, breaking, overcoming the temporal, what's permanent, laying claim to what's temporary. John 3.16, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, one of the few verses in the Bible that we could say really, uh, in a way, summarizes the whole message of the Bible. Right at its heart has this picture of the eternal breaking into the perishable. This is how God loved the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish temporary but have everlasting life, right? So Abraham's life is a life of the permanent, overcoming the temporary. The Christian life is a life of the permanent, overcoming the temporary. Now, Charlie, what do either of these things have to do with the fact that God's foreverness enables us to be peacemakers? <clears throat> Let 
This story starts, if you look at the first verse, it starts with this little phrase, at that time. It's a little bit ironic, since this has to do with everlastingness, right? At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, well, what time are we talking about? What just happened? What big, huge event had Abraham been waiting for that just took place? Well, the birth of Isaac, the child of promise. What's the difference between Abraham, the lying, cheating, chauvinistic fool from before, and this humble, confident, looking out for his family, Abraham, now? What's changed? At that time, when the child of promise was born. The whole Christian life thing that we connect back to Abraham, his whole experience of being over and over again drawn into something that was so much bigger than him, this whole idea of what God is doing in the world is the everlasting breaking in to the lasting, temporarily lasting. This whole thing is not only expressed, but is, like we talked about last week, anchored in history in the birth of Isaac. Isaac was more than just a son. He was more than just an heir that brought honor to an ancient Near East family. Isaac was the flesh and blood, eternal promise of God being anchored in history. Once that boy was born, he could never be erased. God's promise before was a word, a, an idea, a, a hope, a concept, something that lived in Abraham's ears and in his mind and in his imagination. But now God's promise to bless the whole world, to turn the ship around, to renew all things, to deal with the problem of sin. Now God's promise has flesh and bone. It's a little boy. The promise of God, born of a mother who couldn't have babies. We look at Isaac and we see the hope of everything. And at that time, after Isaac was born, Abraham confronts this king of the land of the Philistines and the commander of his army in a tense situation where the well-being of his own family and even the land was on the line and up for grabs. Abraham sees him coming over the hill and Abraham interacts with him as a changed man because the child of promise, because God's eternal covenant of redemption, spoken in his covenant of grace with Abraham, now had a face. Now, it's Advent. 
This is the time where we remember what it's like to hope for the coming of Jesus. We look back to his first coming and we hope for his second coming. This is also a time when we, when we practice newness. It's the start of a new year of worship. And folks, we, if you get in a car or jump on a bus and you go around town and you open your eyes and you look around, here we are, Hope Presbyterian Church, the sojourning people of God in a city that is desperate for the forever peace that only he gives. And we as a church, we want to help. We want to do something. And we have all kinds of things that we want to try. We have all kinds of hopes and all kinds of dreams of how to be welcoming to Portland, how to be agents of transformation in Portland, how to teach Portland, invite Portland to worship the true God, how to be people of peace. And we come across this story and we're reminded that those things aren't just a vain idea. But we're also reminded that nothing that we try is ever, 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 ever going to work unless our hope, unless our minds, our hearts, our imaginations are firmly fixed on the everlasting God breaking into our temporal broken city in the person of Jesus Christ. Like Abraham, our minds have to be fixed on the baby. Jesus, born of a woman that wasn't supposed to be having babies. The promise of God becoming physical. The everlasting goodness of God taking on a face. Taking on a life and being lifted up on a cross to make peace between God and man, between man and woman, between nation and nation, between family and family, lifted up on a cross to make peace, buried, rising, and ascending to the right hand of the Father to advocate for us and for the world that he purchased with his blood. That's our hope. And every effort to make peace that we embark on, without being anchored in that hope, the gospel hope of Jesus Christ, the eternal promise breaking into time and overwhelming our finite lives. Every hope that isn't anchored in that is just a wish for good things that might happen, but probably not. So this Advent, as we worship here, as we meet every week, as, and as we enter into a new year, casting vision and dreaming about what the next season of hope is going to be like and how we could serve our neighbors and how we can do all kinds of wonderful things. I want to invite you with all of my heart, fix your eyes on the man of promise, Jesus himself. He is the eternal God entered into our world for peace For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's pray.